I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view. You don't believe in free speech at all, do you? Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong Hello, my name is Anna Goodell. I'm a second-year student here at UVA studying politics, and I was an intern this past semester at the Center for Politics, um, specifically studying misinformation. In this episode, we talk with Brad Vivian, professor of communication arts and sciences at Penn State University. In his new book called Campus Misinformation, Brad shows how the so-called free speech crisis on U.S. college campuses has been manufactured through misinformation, distortion, and political ideology. Enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. I want to start by asking if you can talk a little bit about how the idea that free speech is under threat on college campuses became a core political appeal. Right. So in one respect, this is a new version in my analysis, of a fairly longstanding story. Um, A lot of what I describe in the book is politically reactionary groups from the era of desegregation forward have charged universities with being hostile to certain sorts of socio-political viewpoints uh, because they were becoming more diverse from the era of desegregation forward and new kinds of curricula were being added. And that was a threat intellectually to the prevailing status quo. Um, And that came from a time those arguments first emerged, I I say in my first main chapter of the book, uh, at a time when college was still basically for socioeconomic elites in many respects. Um, And so these charges then kind of emanate from that era. And what I describe as arguments for quote unquote viewpoint diversity are the new version of this um, that gave that argument intellectual legitimation. Um, The idea, uh, as I understand it, of the viewpoint diversity platform is colleges and universities have quote unquote become diverse enough socially, economically, and so forth, and that we should now focus on major political orientations. Are colleges either liberal or conservative kind of divided roughly 50-50? And this is what I mean by a kind of misleading definition of what might count as free speech and intellectual diversity on college campuses. As I say in the book, I think it's important to understand where political stereotypes come from and how they become lenses for the world. But dividing what happens in all classroom spaces and lecture halls and academic affairs on any given single college campus into sort of, is it either a conservative or liberal emphasis is a very um, myopic focus on what could count as the many different perspectives and topics that students and faculty uh, talk about on a daily basis. Brad, in your opening chapter, you actually talk about the University of Virginia um, uh, as as part of this, um, you know, because we have been at the center of debates regarding desegregation and regarding Confederate uh, nostalgia. Um, Virginia was, of course, home to massive resistance uh, in the wake of desegregation. Um, And you also make that connection to uh, the 2017 Unite the Right rallies, um, which were in response to debates over eliminating symbols of hatred and discrimination. 
close your eyes and remember what you saw. The political environment at UVA right now is very tense, and I think that is the culmination of the events of the last five, six years. Freedom of speech is the hill that I've chosen to fight and die on. I think we've really gotten away from the idea of civility, the idea that we need to have common ground and that we agree on certain fundamental principles. What is civility in a country that's so violent? Why do I owe it, you know, to frankly people that have been oppressing me? I'm very much so, uh, I would say, principled, conservative. Leftist. Conservative. A Democrat. Libertarian. Conservative. Socialist. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit more about the link between the roots of the institutional resistance um, that persists in addressing those hard histories and then the political backlash we continue to see with regards to that, especially as it relates to free speech and misinformation. So that helps me also talk more about sort of where what I describe as this language of campus misinformation came from in a, in a contemporary sense and why in the mid 2010s going into the uh, early 2020s has it persisted and become especially popular. So in terms of um, the kind of pro-diversity and pro-inclusion messages that are, are part and parcel of a lot of college campuses, I think we got it in the U.S. in particular in the mid to late 2020s, uh, 2010s, very strong reaction against those pro-diversity and pro-inclusion measures. And this is what I mean about what I describe as kind of the cynical and misleading argument about those is that uh, if you take the idea that college campuses now are sort of discriminatory or prejudicial against certain viewpoints, um, that historically doesn't hold up. Uh, they have become, in many, by many measures from the desegregation era forward, more open to a diversity of viewpoints. They just don't break down into stereotypical conservative and liberal ones. And so with the events of Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally, if we remember, that was billed as sort of a rally for quote-unquote free speech. And with a lot of extremist groups from that era forward, the idea of attacking university pro-diversity culture and pro-inclusion culture is a broader extremist effort. Um, it followed directly on the wake of a very a, a lot of very ugly social media um, activity known as Gamergate, which made online spaces extremely hostile for women and LGBTQ people. Um, and that was a strategy that was taken to college campuses. And in sort of 2014, 15, 16, 17, there were many ugly incidents, not only on, uh, at, at the University of Virginia with the United Right rally, but say um, the events of the University of Missouri, which I talk about. And a lot of the kind of um, secondhand, thirdhand, at a distance, intellectual legitimation for certain concerns. Well, we don't like these extremist groups attacking those universities, but maybe they have a point about free speech. Uh, this whole language about how students were triggered easily by not having a safe space and that they were overly emotional became a kind of rationalization for why, nevertheless, we should have a kind of hostility against, quote unquote, what's allegedly going on on college campuses. 
So those, uh, the mis misinformation took off then kind of a combination. There's a very intentional extremist push from online spaces to university campuses. But at the same time, I think um, there was a lot of sort of legitimation of pre-existing prejudices and misperceptions about what goes on on college campuses. Just a personal anecdote, but I, I think in about 20, 25 years of university teaching at three different institutions, I might have been in a conversation only once where the term trigger warning or safe space was ever used. But if you read a lot of these reports from this kind of unite the right era forward, it's as if that's all we do. Um, so the title of your book is Campus Misinformation. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about really what campus misinformation is and the way in which you talk about it in your book. And a bit more specifically, what are the different um, ways in which campus misinformation can manifest itself? What are the different strains of campus misinformation? So campus misinformation, and this is a good topic, sort of talk about trigger warnings and safe spaces and the way we, we kind of uh, experience those differently on different campuses. Um, misinformation is taking something that's technically true and using it as a piece of evidence that uh, if you build up elaborate stories and sweeping indictments of groups of people and institutions, um, that's for me the kind of more colloquial sense of misinformation that's operating in this particular book. And so, yes, it's absolutely true that uh, particularly on certain kinds of college communities, people might talk about the need for trigger warnings on syllabi. Some uh, students or faculty have accepted that as a norm, or this the very broad idea of this should be a safe space for dialogue or whatever, an inclusive one. Um, but the misinformation component comes in if you take that and you sort of extrapolate the idea that because of that, students have stopped in general being open to different viewpoints, or they've stopped asking legitimate intellectual questions and having a kind of curiosity. Same thing with controversies over uh, incendiary speakers on college campuses. There's no doubt that that sometimes is a real legitimate um, point of controversy and even conflict. Um, but in many respects, the kind of misinformation as I'm describing it comes when we say, well, because on this one campus, this speaker met organized protest, or uh, that means that all universities in general have abrogated the idea of being open to free speech and given up on that. And the misinformation circulates to uh, hopefully answer your question, question, I try and say, among a lot of different kinds of individuals and groups in public life, um, because it can play many different roles. And this is why I try to avoid sort of just basing what I'm saying on any self-conscious conservative or liberal viewpoint of my own, I'm sort of analyzing this in terms of what is a healthy constructive framework for debate. And this kind of misinformation takes off and goes across many different socio-political perspectives, I think, because it's useful in many ways. People might have pre-existing prejudices against universities just being out of touch and elitist, uh, or this has become a kind of thing where op-ed writers and people who run certain substacks and things of that nature can generate a lot of revenue and readership by promoting these messages. And in terms of democracy, I've been very concerned about the ways in which there's been a formal political uptake of this language. A lot of the banning, quote unquote, of things like critical race theory or certain books that politicians have led um, telling school systems that they can't have pro-diversity messages 
All of this is, I like to say, these are phrases and arguments that were kind of beta tested in the mid 2010s, uh, 2017 and 18, at, with universities as a target. And now they've become sort of an official political platform in many parts of the country with powerful and influential politicians. All right. So I wanted to ask you, um, you talk a lot about how pundits have kind of, I guess, weaponized this campus misinformation. I want to ask why you think pundits have targeted free speech on campuses specifically as a means to kind of cause this polarization. And then going off of that, can you like share some examples of some language and some rhetoric that is used by these pundits and how it might damage academic freedom in a university space? Sure. So in terms of punditry, I, I, what I'm about to say, I don't mean in a critical or negative way. Uh, it's just descriptive. I look at a lot of the messages that you're um, referring to as being a kind of punditry, just expanded to commentary about the state of higher education. And as I'm just sort of understanding punditry, and I admit not in a particularly technical sense, but just sort of a broad rhetorical one, um, a lot of um, punditry is sort of about analyzing situations in social and political life and thinking in terms of broad questions of wrong and right, what's constructive, what's not, and very personality-driven forms of punditry uh, focused on spectacles that will um, help generate an audience for one's argument. And I think we're in a state where what I call campus misinformation has become um, in, in many respects, a form of punditry where the situation isn't what's happening with the major political figures in Washington, DC, but who's doing something right and wrong in higher education in general. And that's why a lot of these reports about controversial speakers, for example, get so much attention in these spaces is because you can break it down into sort of a who's right and wrong in terms of this very theatrical spectacle of defending free speech or not. Um, and so there, like I say, Colonel's a very um, legitimate concern there, but I think a sort of broader, more inclusive conversation from multiple perspectives, um, not those that fit into sort of commentary at a distance, uh, would be a more constructive way to talk about the state of higher education and democracy right now. And examples that I'm thinking about come from and this is one more reason why I say it's, it's kind of a form of emergent punditry is because the language of many of these op-eds and um, exposés and so forth, even in very major national publications, it's different from what you would find in long-term investigative reporting about the state of higher education. There are broad claims about uh, how college students and faculty now are part of a rigid orthodoxy, that they have inflexible thinking, that only certain ideas are mandated on college campuses, that they're hostile to free speech because they engage in certain forms of organized protest, um, that they're overly coddled, overly emotional, um, and these sorts of things. So if, if that's sort of what you're looking for, that off the top of my head, that's the kind of language and what I referred to earlier is almost sort of a common script. Um, these terms come up again and again and again. Um, and I think that's no accident. 
Brad, one of the things you write about is the way in which the United States is not really immune from the attacks that other countries have had from authoritarian populist movements to restrict civil liberties, especially in like Turkey or Brazil. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why we should be concerned about what is happening with free speech on college campus and the ways in which these threats to academic freedom impact democracy? That's a fantastic question, yes. Well, there's a general and a specific response that comes to mind. The general response is that, and I'm not suggesting there's a sort of intentional connection on everyone's part here, but a lot of the targets of what I call campus misinformation resemble historically recent anti-university campaigns abroad in those uh, nations that you just mentioned. So the targets are often pro-democracy, pro-multicultural democracy messages in university discussions and college classrooms, but also um, uh, pro-LGBTQ messages, um, the idea of questioning traditional Eurocentric or Western canons of knowledge, all of these are frequent targets. So the targets then tend to be things that would promote a fully multicultural democracy, a more inclusive one from many different academic and intellectual perspectives. And so that similarity, I think, is just troubling as something to be aware of and worth at least having um, a good discussion about. The more specific answer Uh, relates to the wave of censorship that we're seeing precisely in the name of quote-unquote free speech or intellectual diversity. These arguments to say that um, if people protest on a college campus, and I think this is a very paradoxical notion, that means they're anti-free speech. I would submit they are using their First Amendment rights in that case, engaging in nonviolent protest. But a lot of um, these arguments about how allegedly college students and faculty members and so forth are now hostile to free speech have um, morphed into political arguments for censoring things in libraries, in universities too, but also in public school systems. Um, Same thing with this language that college campuses no longer have healthy intellectual diversity. Those have been transformed too into Um, in a lot of state legislatures, political calls to use government, in essence, to mandate what healthy intellectual diversity looks like by precluding certain views and and certain forms of academic freedom. So in general, given my expertise in the language, what I tend to notice is that the language of these recent arguments echoes certain very pronounced, explicit anti-university campaigns and those other Um, nations of rising uh, authoritarian sentiment. Uh, But then also they've been, the the rationales have been transformed and appropriated as uh, justifications for censorship in various legislatures here. So I'm more specifically concerned about that too, for the sake of democracy and academic freedom. All right, so we've talked a lot about the problem of campus misinformation, and I'm curious um, if you have any ideas of what steps can be taken to kind of dispel this misinformation regarding this free speech crisis, um, especially from a student's perspective? I'm kind of curious um, what way this crisis directly harms students and what steps that students, faculty, and administration can take to mitigate the impacts of this campus misinformation. Mm, tremendously important. 
So a few things come to mind and you mentioned students and I think that is, that is one um, strong basis for potential solution steps. I hear only some kinds of student voices uh, in the kind of subject matter that um, I analyze in the book or oftentimes not at all. One thing I get particularly concerned about is the way students are sort of um, described in what I describe as campus misinformation as a kind of one lump sum. Um, that they're ideologically unified as a group, or they're all one thing or the other. And uh, just being a longtime professor, you know, in even a uh, 20-person classroom, there's just a, such a, an amount of socioeconomic diversity, intellectual diversity, political diversity among those 20 students. And I always learn uh, so much from them in the process of trying to be a good teacher. So I think centering student voices would be terrific. And um, that also leads me to say as well, one reason to center student voices is because increasingly in this day and age, uh, students are involved in, and there's still so much distance to go, but students much more, I think, than in eras past are involved in part of the daily governance of uh, college or university. So that connects with the whole idea of what are students actually doing? And then more broadly, what does the administration actually do? What do faculty do? So I try and use that as a basis then toward the end of the book for saying, let's have some information to counteract campus misinformation about how institutions of higher education actually function. Um, I don't mean to be overly uh, roseate. There are many problems uh, plaguing institutions of higher education today. But a lot of the uh, descriptions that I classify as campus misinformation takes uh, particular incidents or aspects that are technically true, but then builds them up into a vision of how college campuses allegedly operate that I think it's very hard to say that is how they operate when there's 5,000, approximately 5,000 different institutions of higher education in the US might apply to some, but probably doesn't apply to many others. And uh, also, we might find some terrific surprises if we sort of think on a deeper, more granular basis with many different perspectives uh, around, um, around the whole question of what higher education is and how they actually function. Brad Vivian, Professor of Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State University. Thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Listeners, you can purchase his new book, Campus Misinformation, out now from Oxford University Press. There's a link in the episode notes. 